welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. New COVID-19 restrictions go into effect Wednesday. Do they go far enough? What does a return to stage two mean for daycares in Hamilton and across the province? Ontario's liberal leader is critical of what he calls government inaction. The Ontario Medical Association unveiling its resolutions for the upcoming year. What do the new COVID restrictions mean for the Ontario Hockey League? And Stelco has bought a minority stake in the Tiger Cats and it has entered the EV battery recycling market. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. And the fact is this, Omicron spreads like wildfire. It only takes the smallest opportunity to infect. And if we do not act, if we don't do everything possible to get this variant under control, the results could be catastrophic. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Premier Doug Ford announcing yesterday new COVID-19 restrictions are on the way. Return to what is being called a modified step two. How do we stay safe with Omicron raging across the province? Will these new restrictions be enough to blunt its impacts. Mary Fernando is a retired doctor and a writer for Medical Post and Sleuthsayers and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Mary. Morning, how are you? Good, how are you? Fine, thank you. What is your reaction to the return of stage two here in Ontario? Um, I think it's probably wise not to have a lot of people unmasked and eating in restaurants or various other places. I think this is a good thing. We need to do something. Um, I worry about, of course, as everyone does, children in schools and how that will impact things. But the, the, um, I think the question is, will these new restrictions help prevent the virus from spreading? We've had restrictions before. The virus goes where it wants to go. Are, are, is the return to step two going to do um, anything major in, in, in terms of blunting its impact? I think you're asking a big question. You know that, right? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> I think you need to ask why the virus is spreading so quickly and then ask what measures we can take, right? It appears that infected people with Omicron um, either release more virus when they breathe into the air or you can breathe in fewer and still become infected or some combination of that. Omicron is evading vaccines. Um, even certainly with two doses, it's only 72% protective against hospitalizations. Three doses, it's 88% protective against hospitalizations. But the critical thing is three doses are only 75% protective against infections. These are the, this is the data we're seeing from the UK, which is about two weeks ahead of us, right? So then you need to ask, even if it's a mild infection, is this a problem? Well, we've certainly seen hospitalizations rise. Uh, many of them are not intubated but on oxygen. But we need to look like long-term. Um, and the biggest long-term minefield in even mild infections is long COVID, where we get various organ damage, where we get what they call um, sort of a mental fog, which is actually alterations of the blood supply in the brain, These are, this is a serious disease. So what do we need to do to prevent even mild infections? I know a lot of people concentrate on hospitalizations, but what do we do to protect mild infections? And I'm speaking not just for ourselves and the people we love, but for children, because the last thing you want to do is to impair 
their future in any way, particularly cognitively, but through other organ systems, right? So we need to boost. Um, I argued and wrote extensively about boosting. We were way behind. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we're sort of playing catch-up and seeing this surge, because boosters do protect, again, 75% against infections. Two, we the FDA just approved boosters for over 12. Israel has done them, right? So what about boosting children? Yeah, and why, why are we waiting here? Do you know, uh, I wrote since September about the recommendations against boosting. For months, there is no evidence against it. We should be doing it. That is my opinion, and it's an opinion based on a lot of people way smarter than me who have looked at way more data. That's what we should be doing. The second thing we should be doing is um, better masks. And if you're talking about things like school or anywhere we go, we should be wearing N95s. Uh, Dr. Tam suggested that. Now, the suggestion is a, a good one and definitely based in the science of these smaller particles, uh, not smaller, fewer particles infecting people. Where it doesn't work is when the rubber hits the road, which is, I have N95s because I bought them. What about people who can't buy them? Worse, what about people who send their children with N95s because they can afford them and other children don't have them because they can't afford them? Do we actually have a system where preventative health care, which we pride ourselves on universal health care, this is health care, masks at this point are health care, um, is it based on your ability to pay? So we should be providing, I don't think we need to provide everyone with N95s, but we should have access for those who cannot afford, I don't need an N95, I have some. But we should be providing N95s for those who cannot afford them. We could do it quite simply in the schools, right? Mm-hmm. We, these are, this is unfair. I, I cannot even tell you how. We got a couple I'm more minutes. That makes me. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm I'm feeling your anger. We have a couple more minutes with uh, Mary Fernando, retired doctor and uh, writer for Medical Post and Sleuth Sears. You recently wrote about uh, eyewear and how um, uh, eyeglasses or goggles can help prevent COVID from getting into your eyes. I wrote that. That's interesting. I wrote that article actually about a year ago, um, and at that time we had milder variants, and the estimate was about eleven percent of infections were through the eye. If you think about it, if you're breathing, you breathe in particles, right? So it makes sense that you would, you know, get infected. But your eye is a mucosal membrane and particles settling passively on the eye can go down the nose, throat, and infect you. So I suspect we don't have data on Omicron right now because it's new, but I suspect the infections via the eye with Omicron are going to be significantly higher because it takes fewer particles to infect. Huh. Um, we'll have to see how that plays out. You know, you can't assume what the data will be before you see it. However, I do think um, that we need to look at some level of eye protection. Naked eyes are no, no longer a good thing. If you're wandering through a supermarket full of Omicron, you know, if you're sitting in very crowded spaces, some level of eye protection 
would be useful. Now, people think face shields or eye protection. They are not. Right. There, there, there might be a run on ski goggles. We'll have to uh, we'll have to wait and see. Mary, not not to joke about it, but there could be. Mary, appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's Mary Fernando, retired doctor, writer for Medical Post and Sleuth Sayers, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. As we know, Ontario has entered a modified stage two of its COVID-19 reopening plan. These will be targeted and they will be time limited. The immediate goal of these measures will be to blunt the latest wave so we can ease the pressure on our hospitals and allow more time to deliver these all-important booster shots, which continue at a tremendous pace. Premier Doug Ford yesterday announcing the return to Stage 2. What does this mean for daycares in Hamilton and across the province? Kim Eamon is a board member with the Association of Daycare Operators of Ontario and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. How are you doing today? Good. Yourself? (laughs) It's been a a little bit of a crazy morning, but uh, for daycare, for sure. Uh, but I'm doing well. So Thanks. what what does this return to a modified stage two mean for daycares? How crazy is it? Um, you know, most a lot of the regulations um, before Christmas actually went back to a previous stage for us, as in uh, cleaning toys uh, every day, uh, once a day completely. Uh, parents no longer allowed in the building, so we're running kids to their classrooms back and forth. So that happened before Christmas for us. The biggest change for us right now is the new exclusionary rules, as well as the lack of PCR uh, tests available to childcare workers and childcare families. So those uh, those ex- restrictions, and I'll give you an example of my day today. I have ten staff away today on five day restrict five day isolation because I've had a symptom. So today I've had to close two classrooms in my childcare and let parents know about this this morning before their work day. So the PCR testing is actually one of the things that for us has been uh, very difficult that we don't have access to it. Yeah, without 10 staff, I think I hear the phone ringing in the background. Uh, you know, th- 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 Yeah, this has a massive ripple effect. It, it does. Uh, so, you know, the two classrooms that aren't opening today are, you know, a classroom of 26 children and a classroom of 15 children. So those parents aren't able to go to work today uh, because I cannot staff it. It's physically impossible to have that many staff out at once uh, and on five-day five day isolations. And again, we were excluded from the PCR testing that if my staff were able to go and get a PCR test immediately when they have a symptom and they do test negative, then they would be able to return quicker. How, dis- so yeah, how disappointing is not having access to PCR tests f- for you? Because this, this is a game changer. Uh, this is a game changer for all child cares. Uh, and I'm going to guarantee that this, I've heard across the province that uh, they're going to be looking at the same thing as, as we are closing classrooms, closing centers, like having to limit hours for parents. Um, So the ripple effect on this is parents can't work, Uh, which, of course, if they're essential workers, if they're healthcare in healthcare, how are they going to do their job? So it just creates a ripple effect if you don't have childcare available to you. There's also a petition online at change.org to uh, basically pleading with the uh, provincial government to give children in daycares access to a PCR test and and staff members access to PCR tests as well. Is there any movement on this front? Do you see a light at the end of the tunnel? Can these tests be accessed? Haven't heard anything yet. We're still waiting to find out 
Um, so we have testing rules for unvaccinated staff also for antigen testing. Uh, and we're still waiting to find out if those antigen tests are still going to be available to us. So we don't even know if the antigen tests are going to be available to us. So I haven't seen any movement as of yet on the PCR testing. We're hoping that the province is listening and that parents can also help us out by raising their voice in that. It just means we keep Ontario working and those people in their jobs who need to be in their jobs and keep everybody as safe as possible. Kim Yeeman is a board member with the Association of Daycare Operators of Ontario joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. This all comes on the backdrop of still no deal yet for um, $10 a day childcare in this province. And uh, I guess this is just adding to the frustration. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, we everybody's feeling the effects. Every business, every every single person is feeling the effects of this next wave. Um, and I think we just have to look at where the ripple down effect is and and target that and what can we do about that to to alleviate, you know, and get parents to work, right? And get and get staff in child cares and get it so that everybody can get to work. What are the conversations you're having with parents? I mean, you're calling a number of parents saying, listen, your kid can't come because we don't have the staff. Well, we uh, did a very strong warning last week about that this would be a possibility. Uh, so they are certainly aware. Um, we're actually seeing uh, withdrawal, children are withdrawing from the program, which of course is going to uh, have a financial impact uh, for a lot of child cares. And I have heard that from a lot of child cares that people are pulling their children out of child care because at this point it's unreliable. Wow. And, and that's the worst thing yeah. possible because now yeah, that, that ripple effect is getting even bigger and bigger. Uh, Kim, yeah, thank, thank you very much for the time today. Uh, good luck not only today, but uh, down the road. We'll keep in touch. Thank you so much. Kim Eman is a board member with the Association of Daycare Operators of Ontario. She hit the nail on the head. You know, if you have a child or children that uh, you need daycare services, and those services are N.A. because there's no PCR test to confirm or deny whether there is a positive test among a staff member or a child, you know, you get one symptom. Maybe it's a runny nose. Maybe it's a scratchy or sore throat. And you have to report it to your workplace, whether it's daycare or hospital or, heck, a radio station, whatever the case is. And without a PCR test to almost definitively say whether or not you are positive or not, you're gone for five days. And now in Kim's case, with 10 staff members out of the loop, I mean, holy cow, all these parents now have to keep their kids at home or look for alternate arrangements. They can't go to work. Um, yeah, hashtag ripple effect. That's huge. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I know everyone is tired, especially after what was a tough holiday season. But based on the data, emerging evidence on Omicron, and what our hospital partners are experiencing on the ground, these additional time-limited measures are needed to preserve our hospital capacity as we accelerate our booster dose rollout. That is Health Minister and Deputy Premier Christine Elliott announcing yesterday details of Ontario's move back into a modified stage two of its COVID-19 reopening plan as of tomorrow. Virtual school back in effect as of tomorrow until at least January 17th. We heard from, from uh, some of our listeners just before the news at 8, we've heard from daycare providers on the show uh, this morning. A former doctor, a current doctor, 
all disappointed and now um, dealing with the new reality in this province that we're back into stage number two. Stephen Del Duca is the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, and he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton to offer his thoughts on our modified stage two re-entry, if you will. Stephen, good morning. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I would imagine that you're quite disappointed as well that uh, we're back, we're, we're taking a step backwards here. Yeah, deeply disappointed, discouraged uh, in particular, because I don't, I don't believe it needed to be this way. I think that uh, for far too long over the course of the fall and into the early part of the winter, Doug Ford's been missing in action and hasn't made the effort or made the investment necessary to keep us on a, I guess, a strong footing. And so we're, we're back, uh, we're going backwards. And that just doesn't make any sense to me, given the lessons that should have been learned by Doug Ford over the last 21 months. So how could we have avoided this? What should have been done? Well, all the way back in the middle of November, I put out a release. This is now before Omicron was discovered in South Africa or before it was discovered here in Ontario, because we knew with colder weather arriving, people would be going back indoors. The numbers would be, would be, would be going back up. We put out a release back in the middle of November, highlighting a series of things around rapid testing, uh, better ventilation, not just in schools, but in all indoor settings. Uh, a booster plan uh, rolled out that would make, would you know would be strong, would be robust, would be easy for people to access. All of these things and more back in the middle of November. Um, then we got into December. Doug Ford didn't move on this. Then Omicron arrived here in Ontario, and the numbers started to move. And then, of course, you know it, it seemed to me as somebody watching this pretty closely that Doug Ford just went into hiding in the run-up to the Christmas holidays and through the Christmas holidays. And then suddenly this week he emerges and he's scrambling and it's a crisis and uh, dramatic moves have to be made. We, we've seen this movie before from Doug Ford, and I just don't understand how it's possible 20, 21 months into this that some of the lessons from earlier on wouldn't have been learned by the Premier. And it's again, it's just deeply discouraging. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Stephen Del Duca, leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. Rick Samper joining you here on GMH. Uh, I know your job is to point the finger at uh, Premier Ford and and the uh, governing PC party. How much of the blame should the federal government shoulder in this? Because, you know, they're in charge of capacity, procurements, getting PCR tests, which we apparently now uh, have a shortage of. Oh, I don't. I, I, I haven't heard anybody say for, for quite some time that we've had a shortage of anything that we need in Ontario, uh, whether it's vaccines or it's, uh, or it's tests or, or it's any of those things, Rick. I, what I know is everything that I asked Doug Ford to look at doing back in November was exclusively within his control. And I think one of the other things that's been deeply disappointing to watch from Doug Ford throughout this pandemic is when the when the you know what hits the fan, Doug Ford always seems to be ready to blame someone else. He is the premier. The buck stops with him. There are no supply issues of anything that he needed back in November to start rolling out to be ready for this, and he wasn't. And 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 again, you don't have to look any further than last week. Forget about this week's announcement. Last week, when uh, Doug Ford sent out Dr. Moore to make the announcement rather than facing the music himself. When Doug Ford made the decision that schools could have opened this coming Wednesday, tomorrow, uh, and suddenly three, four days later, we realized that, no, it's no longer safe to do so. It's just, it's, it's incompetence uh, like I've never seen before, and, uh, and I don't think it's fair to blame anyone else. I think this is a responsibility that rests exclusively at Doug Ford's feet. 
We heard from a daycare provider earlier on in the show and a board member with the Association of Daycare Operators uh, of Ontario, and they're in scramble mode as well because not only are you know schools not going to be happening in their physical space, but a lot of the um, staff at these daycares are uh, have symptoms they can't get a pcr test um and they're calling in sick because they want to be safe and that's really having a massive ripple effect across this province your thoughts on the daycare fiasco yeah it's all i think fiasco is the best way to describe it it's also it's really scary to know that the government made a decision in the last few days that they wouldn't be reporting uh they wouldn't be reporting positive cases in daycares anymore my understanding is a lot of the daycares in ontario there isn't sufficient ppe uh, you just pointed out that so many people can't get PCR tests. It's it, again, you know, if <laughs> if the lesson had been learned very early on that in a position of leadership during a crisis, your job is to hope for the best, but always prepare for the worst, so that you're doubling down on the booster rollout. You're doubling down on making sure you've got testing capacity in place. Uh, you know, all the way back to vaccine mandates and healthcare and education, things that we've been calling for since July, I think we'd be in a much stronger position today in Ontario if Doug Ford had taken that part of his job more seriously, rather than, you know, rather than prematurely declaring COVID victory and getting ready for an election campaign, which is what he's been doing for the last few months. And so, you know, I, I know Ontarians are a strong and resilient people, but this is just, it's not anywhere that, uh, it's not its not a place that any, any one of us wanted to be in at this point in time. In 30 seconds, uh, looking ahead, what's the, what's the one biggest thing this province should do right now? I think the most important, <clears throat> excuse me, thing to do right now is to really ramp up uh, the boosters and to make sure that they're easily accessible for people. And uh, within schools in particular over the next few weeks, where they're going to physically be closed. To not squander the opportunity to deal with proper masking, with proper ventilation, with making sure that kids are who are eligible are getting the vaccines. I, I'm really nervous that they're going to close the schools and do nothing with the time and, and not position us for, for going forward in the strongest way possible. Stephen, uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts and thanks for coming on the show once again. We'll chat with you down the road. Thanks, Rick. You take care. Stephen Del Duca, leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Ontario Medical Association has unveiled its resolutions for the upcoming year. And here to chat about it is Dr. Adam Kassam. He's the president of the OMA. Dr. Kassam, good morning. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us. Rick, Happy New Year. Good morning to you as well. Hey, before we focus on some resolutions for 2022, do you want to offer some reflections on what was a roller coaster of a 2021? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, and I know that there is a bit of a rocky start to, to 2022 right now with some of the recent announcements that happened yesterday by Dr. Moore and, 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 and the Premier. Uh, but 2021 was a year that we started uh, with a lot of uncertainty. Obviously, we started rolling out our vaccine campaign. We didn't know very much about how the vaccine would not only be um, be be, be received and how effective it would be, but also our ability to distribute the, the vaccine in Ontario was something sort of, uh, which was a big question mark. I think that question mark has been you know, readily answered, which is that we have a very, very good ability to, to distribute vaccine. It's not perfect, but we are able to get shots in arms. In fact, over the past week, uh, I've been giving booster shots uh, across uh, Ontario, predominantly in the GTA, but um, it's been it's been a very 
robust uh, ability to do that. So I, I would say that our, our, our year in 2021 was rocky. It was uneven. There was some uneven progress, and we're seeing a little bit of that right now in 2022. But um, I think that we've learned a lot. We're fundamentally in a different place. Yes, we have some concern about the, the rising case numbers, and yes, we're moving back into a modified step two. But I will say that um, we, we anticipate um, still being able to move forward uh, in 2022. The uh, OMA uh, unleashing a number of uh, resolutions from a number of uh, high-profile uh, physicians and those in the um, uh, the medical fields. Uh, wh- what are some of the resolutions for 2022 that the OMA and its members are uh, adopting? Well, you know, Rick, I think right now, um, you know, seeing how Omicron is playing out, obviously our one of our major resolutions is to get as many people fully vaccinated as possible, uh, trying to make sure that we get as many doses in arms so three doses that people are currently eligible for. The majority of people that I've seen walk through the clinic doors for uh, vaccines have been, um, you know, excited about their third doses, which is great. Uh, but generally speaking, our, I think our uh, our association and our members um, want to focus on their mental health. They want to focus on well-being and taking care of themselves and their loved ones. Uh, I know a lot of us have been feeling pressure over the past 21 months to uh, continue to take care of the patients voluntarily. We're going to continue to do that. But of course, that's also meant uh, some, some some challenges on the personal side, whether it's, uh, you know, constant um, uh, having to glove, mask, and gown at work or isolate because of exposure uh, to the virus. And so trying to make sure that we spend some time taking care of ourselves and our loved ones, I think, is of a top priority for our membership and our association. That is a, a big sentiment when you go through the list of uh, healthcare professionals who are making their resolutions, including one, Dr. Jennifer Kwan, who's a family physician in Burlington, who says, quote, my resolution is to look after my mental health by living with an attitude of gratitude and appreciating the small moments that make life meaningful. It really points to the grind that COVID has created amongst uh, healthcare professionals. No, there's no question, Rick, that, uh, that healthcare professionals have been at the tip of the spear. We've seen um, COVID and its subsequent waves play out, uh, whether it's in our hospitals, but also within long-term care or even in the community. I also want your listeners to understand that we know how, how tough it is It is on the public. We know that we're going back into a stage two um, of, of the reopening, which means that um, people will have to either, you know, curtail some of their outdoor, uh, their indoor activity, retail, businesses, um, schools, of course, small, uh, and, and so this is a huge disruption yet again for, for the public. And so we know that we're, we're all dealing with this at the same at the same time, and, and there's simultaneous challenges that are that are being faced. And so I, I think if we can focus on our shared humanity, our shared experience of this terrible disease and, 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 and how we're trying to move forward with it, I think that will allow us to focus on our collective unity that's going to be needed for success into the future. Dr. Adam Kassim is our guest. He's the president of the Ontario Medical Association. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. I guess the million-dollar question is, will this new set of restrictions work? Will it curb the spread of Omicron? Or is that basically... Um, going to depend on the number of people who get their booster shots? Well, I think it's absolutely going to be dependent on the number of people that get booster shots. What we can have confidence about is that Ontarians far and away have been have, de- have demonstrated world leadership in getting their vaccine, which is amazing. And so what I think all of these restrictions are intended to do is, is blunt the um, simultaneous uh, contraction of the disease uh, by very many people. And what I mean by that is right now, if it, through our restrictions and through some of the, the, the measures that are being imposed, if we can uh, attempt to flatten a little bit of that curve while uh, giving buying us some time to put as many doses in arms, 
uh, that will uh, ultimately give us uh, an, uh, an ability to maintain the integrity and capacity of our healthcare system to, to deliver services. Now, obviously, we've uh, it's been announced that some of those services will be uh, temporarily um, suspended. And of course, we know that all of those procedures and surgeries that we're talking about uh, have a significant impact on, on patients. And so what I want your listeners to know is that, um, that, that their doctors are still open. They want to see patients, especially outside in the community, so outside the four walls of a hospital. So please have them uh, have, have your listeners understand that they, they should reach out to their doctors if they have any concerns. We want to be able to see uh, our, our patients and those folks who need care, and we're going to try and deliver it to the best of our ability given the circumstances that we have now find ourselves in. Dr. Kasim, thank you very much for the time today, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Rick. Take care. You too. That's Dr. Adam Kassim, president of the Ontario Medical Association, Health Minister Christine Elliott, also offering a New Year's resolution for 2022 in part saying, this new year I encourage all Ontarians to make getting vaccinated one of their resolutions. The COVID-19 vaccine is the best way to protect ourselves, our loved ones and our communities. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We need to prioritize the continued health and safety of our kids and our school staff. Premier Doug Ford yesterday announcing a return to Stage 2 virtual learning back in action tomorrow until at least January the 17th. What do the new COVID-19 restrictions in Ontario mean for the Ontario Hockey League? Well, word is that the OHL could make an announcement to that effect as early as today. Mike Stubbs is the host of London Live on sister station 980 CFPL in London and is also the voice of the London Knights hockey team and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Rick. What are you hearing about a potential OHL announcement today? Well, I mean, I think we can do some math on this in that the league has at least one game set to go for tomorrow. And so with that happening, you've got to decide, is that game going forward? Are we going to take a pause? And we still have cities, buildings, and teams trying to make sense of what the regulations and restrictions are for them in that, okay, can we practice? Can we play? When we play, it really looks like it will be in front of zero fans Is that something that we want to entertain? So I'm pretty sure there were a lot of conference and Zoom calls yesterday after Premier Doug Ford made that announcement. What's the likelihood of a paused season? Is it greater than 50 percent, do you think? (laughs) You know what? If you have a coin, I think that's that's a great spot to put it, Rick. Flip it, because could you pause? You could make an argument both ways. You could make an argument that, you have a pause because let's remember the Ontario hockey league is a gate driven league. And last year the owners did not make any money. In fact, they lost money. The Kitchener Rangers are a publicly owned team. And so you see their financial statements at the end of every year, they announced that for 2020, 2021, when there were no OHL games, they lost $2.3 million. So we're not looking at ownership groups that largely have Lots and lots and lots of money. In some cases, Kitchener, Peterborough, we're looking at community-owned teams. In Owen Sound, you've got a number of business owners who saved the team back in 2000, and they would have to kind of pool some money together. So if you're not bringing in any money, can you still play? So that kind of makes you lean toward, well, why don't we pause for a little bit, and then hopefully we can get back in front of 
a gate for a gate-driven league, get back in front of some fans who are purchasing tickets. The other side of things, and I know owners and management feel very strongly about this, is that the players have to play. The players were off last year. And so you can make the argument that players need to be on the ice. They need to be developing. They've lost a lot of time, as it is in many cases. So can we grit our teeth, make it through a couple of weeks, and then pick it up from there. So those will be the conversations that are happening in all of those little boxed windows on Zoom calls until an official announcement comes down, and it wouldn't surprise me if it did come down today. Mike Stubbs is our guest. He's the host of London Live on 980 CFPL in London and the London Knights play-by-play announcer joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Let's just say it's a a two-week pause, maybe a month tops. Obviously, you know, the league's 20 teams will probably or at least most of them probably won't be able to survive that kind of financial hit with no fans in attendance if they do play. Say the pause happens and the league comes back, is is it going to be uh, a case in what the NHL adopted a couple of seasons ago in terms of a points percentage system to determine playoff teams? Is that your best guess on what might happen? Well, Rick, you make a really good point. That's something that the league will have to look at right now. If you look the Ottawa 67s have played eight more games than the Barry Colts have. Barry and Sudbury have really been hit hard by rescheduled games and postponements. So, sure, you may have to do that because, let's face it, in the first three weeks, or sorry, the first three months of an OHL season, you play 34 games. Then in the last two and a half months, you play 34 games. That's just the way the schedule has gone for years and years. So if you're to look and say, all right, well, now we've got to fit in eight more games than we normally would have. So basically 40 games for some teams over that same period of time. Now, the OHL had stretched it out a little bit. They'd given themselves two extra weeks at the end of this season that still have games scheduled in them, but it does give a little bit more buffer time. But still, we're not dealing with professional athletes. We're dealing with athletes who are going to high school athletes who are going to college, to university. So there is still that aspect of it, and that's why the games typically are held on weekends. And so you have an opportunity now to say, all right, how how do we factor this in so that we are making sure that the season is viable and that we are kind of making things as competitive as possible if we can't get every single game in. So more questions, more discussion for those Zoom boxes. We'll wait for the shoe to drop. Mike, appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. Mike Stubbs, host of London Live on Sister Station 980 CFPL and the voice of the London Knights. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Big news over the weekend involving Stelco and the Hamilton Tiger Cats. They're joining forces to create a new Hamilton sports group that will oversee the operation day-to-day of the CFL team. There's also some big news regarding Stelco and the electric vehicle market. Here to break it down is Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, and he joins us now. Good morning, Marvin. Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to you and your listeners. Uh, let's start with uh, Stelco and the Ticats, and then we'll move into the EV batteries sure. segment. Uh, this is an interesting partnership here. Well, it is, and, and really quite unexpected. Now, uh, Mr. Kestenbaum, Alan Kestenbaum, uh, is the person behind uh, Stelco. He's an American, and he has, in his pr- sort of private life, shown a great interest in sports. He owns a tiny sliver of the NFL Atlanta Falcons. 
That happened a couple of years ago when the owner was prepared to sell 10% of the company. He sold that for $300 million. That's U.S. dollars. So those are real big dollars. Uh, and Mr. Kastenbaum got a little chunk of that 10% along with four other people. Uh, this is not Alan Kastenbaum, though, making the investment in the Tiger Cast. It is Stelco itself. Um, no dollar value announced, but I'm guessing... I'm guessing that it's probably something on the order of, oh, let, you know, let's say a $10 million kind of an investment uh, into the Tiger Cats. The Tiger Cats sells, even though they also own the Forge, it's not that big of an investment, but it's being done by Stelco. And maybe one other quick note on that. Most people don't realize, but Stelco has just come off a record-setting year in terms not only of the revenue it generated, but the profit it generated. This is not the company that was on the edge of bankruptcy a few years ago. So to divert a little tiny bit of the profit towards uh, taking an ownership stake in the in the football club doesn't seem that strange to me. I heard from a couple of Stelco pensioners who weren't too thrilled with this acquisition because they want some of that money. <laughs> well, fair, fair, fair enough, and and so one can certainly argue that uh, there are other uses for the profits of the company. But remember, uh, most of this was settled when the company came out of bankruptcy. This reminds me very much about the the old story of uh, the widow Horton when she sold her share to Ron Joyce. She sued on three separate occasions and said, basically, if I knew what you were going to do with my share, I would have asked a lot more money for it. <laughs> well, you can't do that in business. You sell it for the best value at the time. So when, when the company emerged from bankruptcy, everyone was settled and everyone had to say, I'm happy with the settlement. Of course, Mr. Kestenbaum has had a really good year, thanks in part to COVID and demand for steel and world steel prices. Uh, let's shuffle off to uh, what might even be a, a bigger story for Stelco, in, and that is entering the EV battery market. So what's the steelmaker doing? Yeah, and well, in this case, they're not... Uh, building the batteries, they are going to recycle them. So electric vehicles, uh, a big part of the vehicle, a big part of the weight of the vehicle are these lithium-ion batteries. For instance, uh, in a Tesla, almost the entire floor of a Tesla is its battery unit. Uh, very effective, can be recharged over and over again for about eight years, and then those batteries just don't hold a charge anymore, so you've got to swap out the old ones and put in a set of new batteries after eight years. And what do you do with the old batteries? There'd been a lot of speculation they might wind up in a dump somewhere. And instead, what Mr. Kestenbaum has done is signed a deal with an Australian-slash-German company to acquire their technology. He's going to build a plant. Now, I use that term. I don't want you to think something the size of Stelco. It, you know, it's more like, a, 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 like almost a Coca-Cola bottling plant next door to the Natacoke Works. This plant should be done by the end of this year, so it's not a huge, huge thing. They'll basically take apart those batteries, recycle the inner material, but what most people don't know is in these uh, electric vehicle batteries, there's a certain amount of steel as well, and that will be recycled immediately by being put into the blast furnaces down in Nanticoke, and so it's going to be a, a good thing for the environment, and it's another nice uh, uh, addition to the Stelco family of companies. Yeah, the, the company uh, uh, Stelco saying that the, it's going to be converted into green steel, which is uh, very interesting, and as you said, yeah, saving the environment as well. Any guesstimate on how many jobs this could create? Yeah, I, I'm sorry to say I don't think uh, this is a big job gainer. Uh, you know, when I say that, it could be 50 jobs, 75 jobs. Uh, this 
at the beginning anyway, there aren't a lot of car batteries needing to be recycled. It's going to grow because, as you know, by the year 2030, all the major car companies, not just in North America but around the world, have pledged to only produce electric vehicles. And so uh, by a decade from now, that will be when it's going to be at its utmost. But when it first opens later this year or early in 2023, you know, I'm, I'm thinking again, we're talking a few dozen jobs to start with. It could grow a bit more. Uh, but again, this will be a highly automated technology as well. Can you foresee other companies going down this route too? Is this just going to be steel makers who kind of have this capacity and this land to do so? You know, that's a, that's a good question, and uh, certainly I'm, I'm not sure that you'd only have one of them in Canada. In other words, if I have an EV in, in uh, Vancouver and need to replace the battery, that those batteries will get shipped across the country to, tr- uh, to Hamilton. I don't imagine so. So I think I can see this happening sort of one per province or, or at least one for the more uh, major provinces out there. Uh, and I'm not sure, again, that it's Stelco's idea that they would own them all, but it, it, it's a... It, marginal cost to get into this business for a company like Stelco it's it's a nice thing to have happen and and I think what Stelco is doing is saying we're now successful enough at making steel we can take some of that money that we've generated and and create these dividends of starting some other companies two unrelated completely unrelated obviously uh, electric vehicle batteries have nothing to do with the Hamilton Tiger Cats and vice versa but uh, it is nice to see them investing back in the community mm-hmm. yeah and d- diversification is never a bad thing either. Marvin, appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be with you, Rick. Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, breaking down the Stelco Ticats new ownership structure called Hamilton Sports Group, as well as Stelco getting into the rapidly growing electric vehicle battery recycling market through an agreement with Primobius is the name of the Australian slash German company that Marvin alluded to. And yeah, they'll be Um, taking in these um, vehicle EV batteries, as we know, by 2030, 2035, uh, all new vehicles in this country will be EV battery powered. Uh, So Stelco is going to take those batteries, recycle them, make some green steel and, you know, get some other materials that it can use uh, in its uh, in its processes. Pretty exciting news. And it's happening right here in Hamilton. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.